Paul writing, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So Paul knows that he ruffled some feathers with what he's written so far. The things that we looked at over the last several weeks about the work of God's Holy Spirit, those were hard things for the Corinthians to read. It was difficult for them, I'm sure, to hear that this, these experiences that they were ident- felt like they were identified by, these things that they felt like set them apart as spiritual, Paul's not just calling in question what those experiences might be, but he's saying, listen, as good as that is, there's something better I want you to pursue. I want you to pursue love. And, and, and how would that make them feel? How, how does it make it feel anytime any of us get corrected? What happens when our behaviors are corrected or our motives are exposed or our assumptions about things are shown to be untrue. What happens to us when we have those experiences? We begin to wonder, is it worth following Jesus? Did they get it wrong, we might think? Are all my efforts worthless? How can something that I was so sure was right now be somehow wrong or at least less than best? And this is a common experience for all of us whether we're already Jesus followers or not, we have these times when we get disillusioned. When we think we're going the right way and then we are corrected by someone and we realize maybe I wasn't going the right way. Or we think something is true and then we wonder maybe I didn't have this right. We all have this experience. And it's interesting because Paul's been challenging, of course, in, in, in chapters 12 through 14, specifically about the work of the Holy Spirit as God's people gather together. He had some good things to say to the Corinthians, but he had some challenging things to say to the Corinthians, and he has more things that he needs to challenge them on. Specifically, he needs to challenge them on their view of the resurrection, what happens to us after we die. And so we start that challenge in chapter 15, but... but Paul begins by just wanting to say, let's remember the gospel. Let's go back to what you first heard and you first understood. So we talk about the gospel, which you probably know is translated good news. Should be, it literally means good news. We talk about the good news about Jesus. It's both the foundation and the framework of our Christian experience. And Paul wants the Corinthians, and the Holy Spirit wants us, 
to remember the gospel so that we know what we're meant to hold fast to. Because listen, if you're a Jesus follower, you are called to hold fast to Jesus, to persevere in the faith. And if you're not a Jesus follower, know that what what Jesus invites you into is an eternal relationship. It doesn't start when you're resurrected. It starts right now. So what we want to see here today is, as Paul is, is wanting to show the Corinthians, listen, you have a hope that's bigger than your experiences. You have a hope that actually, ironically, prepares you to have better experiences. And that hope is in Jesus. Let's talk about three things about how Jesus motivates us to hold fast to him as our hope. The first thing is really obvious in verses 1 to 4. Listen, Jesus is the good news. Look at verse 1 and the first part of verse 2 again. Paul says, I would remind you, brothers. Literally, he says, I want you to know something. It's a little bit of a jab. Because remember, the Corinthians were big about what they knew. They had this spiritual knowledge. He's like, well, let me tell you, I have something I want you to know, or at least know again. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, this gospel, this good news I preached to you, is something that you are forever dependent upon. It is how you're saved. It's how you're rescued. When he says, this is what you first received, he says, listen, it's the work of Jesus. It's it's hearing who Jesus is and what he's actually done for you that motivates us to say, I can trust God. It's when we see who Jesus is and what he's done, we think, I can trust God. I want to receive Christ into my life because he's the reason I know I can trust God. He says, in which you stand, This gospel in which you stand. Here's your perfect standing with God. It's the perfection of Jesus. Not your perfection, his perfection. That's your standing before God. That's the gospel. By which you're being saved. In other words, listen, it's not just the fact that we we talk, we use language of salvation as if I'm already saved. And that's true. We're both already saved and we're being saved. We're being delivered from our sinfulness, and one day we'll be saved completely and fully at the resurrection. But the point is this, Paul's saying, listen, this good news that I preached to you, this gospel of Jesus that I preached to you, listen, it was the faithfulness of Christ that you hold on to. It is the faithfulness of Christ that you hold on to to know I'm going to get to the end. There's this great verse in Philippians that Paul writes. I'm reading from the New Living Translation where Paul says, I am certain... I am certain, he says, that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. When we say we're forever dependent upon the good news, what we're saying is we can ever trust the good news. We can trust that Jesus is enough. He is our motivation to to know that God's good and, and worthy to be trusted. He is the perfection in which we stand, the righteousness in which we stand. He is the guarantee that we're going to make it. And listen, this is so important to remember this, especially when you're in that place where you're going, 
I'm kind of having the things that I used to believe being questioned. I'm kind of experiencing things that are making me feel a bit unstable. This is important. Because as Paul was purposely wanting to challenge the Corinthians, he was not wanting to challenge them so they would say, oh, I don't know if I want to believe in Jesus anymore. Or I don't know if I can trust in Jesus anymore. It was just the opposite. He was wanting to bring them to this place where what we're talking about this morning, of saying, God, it's you that I need to trust in. It's you, Lord Jesus, that I need to hold fast to. Then he explains what the good news is really clearly in verses three and four. Probably the most clear definition of the good news in the scriptures. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I love this. Because Paul's both the message giver and the message receiver. He says, this is of first importance. Here's the priority. Notice he says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What does he mean by that? What he means is that, first and foremost, is that the death that Jesus died is in accordance with what the scriptures, that is, in, in Paul's case here, what Paul's talking about is the Old Testament scriptures, okay? What the Old Testament scriptures said about God's chosen king and what he would have to do to bring God's kingdom on earth. If God's going to bring his kingdom on earth and any of us are going to be in it, he's going to do something to make us able to be in his kingdom. And so what he's talking about here is the Old Testament scriptures describe both our need for a Messiah, our need for a mediator, our need for someone to die for us, but also how they end up pointing to Jesus. Let me just give you one quick example, again, reading from the New Living Translation. In Isaiah chapter 53, the author Isaiah is writing about the suffering servant, and he says, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid hold on him the sins of us all. The suffering of the servant, of course, is a picture of who Jesus would be. And we know this is what Paul's getting at. We know that Paul's teaching us that when Christ died according to Scripture, it's what the Old Testament Scripture was saying that God's chosen king, his Messiah, would do for his people. And Paul unpacks this in different places. Actually, Peter says something similar. Listen to this. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Paul will say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Again, New Living Translation. He says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for, uh, for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. All the Old Testament points forward to Christ. All the New Testament confirms that Christ is who we look to. And until the Lord comes back, Christ is who we proclaim. Guys, this is great news that what we see in the Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. And all the Scripture points to Jesus. That's why our tagline is, it's all about Jesus. Because guess what? It's all about Jesus. Always. And it's good news. Paul says it's the good news in all of Scripture. The gospel isn't just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's the foundation and the framework. It's both. 
But Paul goes on to say, listen, not just that he died for our sins, but he says specifically, notice in verse 4, he says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, Paul being really clear saying he was buried, there's no indication there's no way you can take from what Paul says, from what the scripture declares, that Jesus kind of faked his death. Or that, oops, it wasn't Jesus, it was someone else. No, he was buried. He was absolutely buried. It's important. What about this idea that he rose again from the scriptures? Now, you guys remember this, this verse in, in, in Acts chapter 2, Acts 2.42, talking about the first Christians, how they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. We're going to teach the book of Acts after 1 Corinthians, so we'll talk about that. But that verse, Acts 2.42, listen. The apostles' doctrine is simply this. It's the apostles like Paul, like Peter, like John, like others, who took the Old Testament scriptures and said, here's how these pointed to Jesus. That's the apostles' doctrine, okay? Now, listen to how Jesus, or I'm sorry, how Peter does this in Acts chapter 2. Listen. It says, God, this is Peter preaching, right? He's preaching, and he's going to quote from Psalm 16. It says, Peter preaching, he says, God raised up Jesus, resurrected Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, now here quotes Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, David, in one sense, is writing about himself. God, you're going to deliver me. But in another sense, he's writing prophetically about the Messiah, the one Jesus, I'm sorry, the one that God promised would come from his line. God made a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David the king saying, I'm going to make sure there's always someone on your throne. Your descendant will be on the throne over Israel forever. And David believed that meant the Messiah was going to come from him. God's chosen king would come from him. So when he says... God, you will allow your holy one, your Messiah, your anointed, your chosen one, to see corruption. He wasn't talking about himself because you can go to David's grave, well, maybe not now, but you could have in the first century seen David's grave and he was buried and had been there for quite a while. He was corrupt as you can get as far as physically goes. But Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He resurrected. The point is this, listen. Jesus is the good news, and it's the good news that all the scripture talks about. This is why, listen, when Jesus rose from the dead and he appears to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, what does he do? Listen to this. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the risen Jesus interpreted to his disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I say this so many times. And I never get sick of saying this because it's so important for us to get the profundity of what's happening in Luke chapter 24. Jesus is resurrected. He's talking to his disciples who knew him before he was crucified. They don't recognize him because they're not really thinking he could actually be resurrected. Though they heard the rumors of him being resurrected. And what does Jesus do? Does he go, wake up guys, check it out, it's me. Is that what he does? He says, let's have a Bible study as we walk to Emmaus. And he opens the scriptures and shows them throughout all the Old Testament scriptures how God's chosen king would have to be crucified and then resurrected. That's what he does. Why is this so important? Because when we're talking about that Jesus is the good news, we're talking about a good news that we forever are called to trust, to hold on to. 
And we're also talking about a good news that's in all of Scripture. This is why, listen, this is why we intentionally teach you guys verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. We do topicals as well. Topicals are good. But we tend to go verse by verse through whole books of the Bible so you can see from Genesis to Revelation how Jesus is the fulfillment of all Scripture and he's who we need to trust in. And in the last part of verse 2, he, he has this phrase. Paul, Paul writes, he says, If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, in this early context, here in, in, in this first 11 verses, it's not, this is not necessarily him holding something over their head. He's wanting them to say, listen, trusting the good news is never in vain. There is such a thing as believing in vain. That's next week's study. We'll talk about that next week. But what he's saying here is, is, listen, trusting the good news is never in vain. Because I, I don't know how much you've been struggling this week. I don't know what you've been doubting. Uh, I don't know what you've been, been, been wrestling with. I don't know where you failed. I don't know where you're trusting yourself because you think you're succeeding so well. I don't know what's going on in your heart, but God does. And here's what I know for sure that he would say to you right now, keep holding fast to Jesus. He's the gospel. You're not the gospel. We're not the gospel. He's the gospel. Now he goes on to say, in verses 5 to 8, he wants us to see, Paul wants his readers to see, that Jesus is historically and eternally resurrected. Now he's laying out some foundational things here, not so much to prove the resurrection, but to lay a foundation of, of it's knowing the resurrected Christ that actually changes our lives. He'll talk about why it's vain not to believe in the resurrection again. That's next week. And then the following week, he'll talk about why it's good to believe in the resurrection. That's in two weeks' time. That'll be Johnny. But right now, what he's wanted in the seas, listen, you, you need to get through your head that Jesus is historically and eternally resurrected so that you know that the people that have been changed are changed by him. He's doing this work. So he says in verse 5, notice, he says, he rose from that according to the scriptures, verse 4, verse 5, and that Jesus appeared to Cephas and then the 12. Cephas is another name for Peter, the apostle Peter. Now here's what's interesting about this. We, we kind of know this stuff, right? We, we know that, that, okay, yeah, Peter went and saw the empty grave and was like, whoa, what's going on? We know that Jesus appeared to the, to the uh, disciples. We know this happened. But here's what's interesting. We forget, listen, we forget that the disciples were doubting and discouraged. We forget this. And it's important for us not to forget this. You know why? Because if you're doubting and discouraged today, this resurrection is for you. This witness of the resurrection is to say this belongs to you if you're doubting and discouraged. Listen to this in Luke chapter 24 also. Listen. It says, and as they were talking about these things, the disciples are talking about the fact that Jesus is alive and Peter saw him, doesn't know what to make him. Other guys say they saw him, other guys say they haven't seen him. What's going on with this? It says, as they talked about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened through and thought they had saw a spirit. Now, I gotta say, I, maybe I'm reading into this, but I kind of think Jesus scared them on purpose. <laughs> peace to you. <laughs> I would have done that. But he says, peace to you. 
Why does he say peace to you? This is why, listen, he says to them, they, they were scared, they thought they saw a, a ghost or a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus says, I'm the evidence. I'm the evidence. That's what he says. I love this. Because here's the disciples, discouraged, doubting, even thinking, maybe we should just go back to our old life. And you see in the gospel accounts, Peter going, I'm going to go fishing. I'm just going to go back and go fishing again. And Jesus shows up, and he, what does he say to him? You idiots. What's wrong with you? Is that what he says? He says, peace to you. Check out the evidence. Peace to you. How good is our God? You see, again, I want you to, to keep this in the context, that Paul's sharing this in the context of a group of people that, that fell short in no gift, he writes in the first chapter, but also got into these strange excesses and had different ideas that weren't gospel ideas that he had to correct. People whom he loved that didn't always love him back. People whom he had to say, listen, you got to do the stuff right. God loves you and he wants you to walk with him right, so you got to understand the gospel. He's saying to them, after rebuking them, after correcting them, knowing they're probably doubting and discouraged, saying, listen, peace to you. The resurrected Christ is still resurrected. Even as you're wrestling through these things. So Jesus was witnessed by discouraged and doubting disciples, but he was also witnessed by a large, and in the first century, mostly living crowd. What does he say in verse 6? Verse 6, he says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So, so Paul's making it really clear. Listen, this is not some kind of delusion that these guys had. The disciples weren't like, gee, I wish Jesus was still alive. Maybe we'll see him. No, they were doubting and discouraged. And then this is not just the disciples as in the 12 or the 11 that were still left. This is actually 500 brethren at once. This is why we'll see in the beginning of the book of Acts, there's 120 praying for the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit because those 120 were of probably the 500 who saw Jesus resurrected. This is not some sort of delusion or wishful thinking. This is an historical reality. In fact, I love the fact that Paul says, he doesn't exaggerate. He says, look, some of them have died, but many are still alive. In other words, if you don't believe me, go ask them yourself. Again, here's some evidence. Here's another witness for you. But lastly, he, he talks about how the, the, this Jesus, who is historically and eternally resurrected, has been witnessed by former skeptics and persecutors. Maybe you're one of those too. He says, in verse 7, Paul writes, Then he appeared, Jesus appeared to James, then all to the apostles. Now, almost everybody agrees this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And if you read Mark chapter 3, what you'll see is James, with his brothers, was there trying to get Jesus to stop preaching because they thought he had lost his mind. They mocked him. I think it's in John chapter 10. Oh, no, it's in John chapter 7. His brothers, his family mocked him and said, why don't you just go to the feast and show like you're the Messiah? 
And he goes, it's not my time yet. He did end up going to the feast and saying he was Messiah, but he told them, look, it's not my time yet. His brothers obviously didn't believe in him. James didn't believe in him. But then we read about James later on as the half, or I'm sorry, the half-brother of Jesus. We read of James as the author of the book of James, one of the first letters that we have from the New Testament. He eventually became the leader of the Jerusalem church. We have this, what, what causes someone to be from a skeptic to a, I'll lay down my life and die? What causes someone to be the little brother who thinks older brother is just delusional to I'm his servant and I want to worship him and follow him wherever he calls? He saw Jesus resurrected. Now, we don't have a gospel account where James sees the resurrected Jesus, but this is the implication that Paul's making here. And James would have been alive at this time. He saw the resurrected Jesus, and it changed him. But also, Paul then includes himself. Notice he says, verse 8, Last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. First of all, when Paul says last of all, he's, he's acknowledging there's no other apostles of this kind after him. You see that? It's important. Especially when we get the book of Acts, that's important, right? But also, what's he, what's he saying here? When he, when he describes himself as one uh, who is untimely born, he, he's recognizing, listen, man, I, it was like there was something wrong with my birth, like I was born too early, like, like I wasn't expected to come. He's using this, exa- this example. See, listen, you guys probably know Paul's story, right? Paul, who used to be Saul, remember his story? What did he do when he was Saul? He persecuted Christians. He sought them out and he killed them or had them put in jail because he thought he was doing God's service by doing so. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, actually had to meet him as he's on the way to persecute more people. He's going to Damascus to to arrest more Christians. The resurrected Jesus had to meet him, literally knock him off his horse and say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And reveals himself to Saul and says, I got a plan for you, buddy, and it's not this. And Saul eventually becomes Paul, who recognizes, listen, who recognizes the resurrected Jesus changes everyone he meets. The reason this is important is because Paul's trying to realign the Corinthians and himself. He's trying to say, listen, I know what you've just heard me say. I know this correction is hard to say. I know I, I actually flexed a bit and said, I'm an apostle and you got to do what I say. I know I did this, but I'm doing this also as someone, listen, as someone who knows the same Jesus you know, as someone who needs the same Jesus you need. And I want you to keep holding fast to him. You see, here's the the thing, guys. The Corinthians were probably relying on their personal experience for hope. Nothing wrong with experience, by the way. Let me be super clear about this. God has not called us to be those who think experiences are bad. God describes our Christian life in experiences. The joy inexpressible and full of glory that Peter talks about is not just a teaching, it's an experience. If you haven't experienced a joy inexpressible and full of glory, you need to know God wants to move you that direction. The peace that surpasses understanding 
that's better than understanding is the literal way to translate that. That, 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 that you can have when everything else is falling apart, you can have that as you pray and give God thanks and say, God, help because we can't sort this out. And God can guard your heart and mind with a peace that is a real experience. Nothing wrong with experience, but our hope doesn't come from experience. The power that God wants to work in your life so that you can love people and be used by, by God to minister to other people. Real power to do real supernatural things. That power is glorious and an experience that God wants to move us towards, but it's not your hope. And you wonder if the Corinthians were leaning on this and, and Paul's saying, gosh, there's something way better for you to have your hope in. It's the Jesus who lives forever. Peter puts it this way. Listen, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Amen? Hallelujah. How amazing is this? A living hope. How does, that, how does that hope die? There's one way that hope can die. Listen, this is serious. There's one way that hope can die. Only one way that hope can die, and that's if Jesus is dead. But he's alive forever. Do you believe that? So what kind of hope do you have? Living hope. Can you see what Paul's trying to do? He's trying to bring these guys back in line with Jesus. Lastly, listen. Paul wants them to recognize that it's Jesus who provides grace that transforms. So when we talk about saving grace, we don't just mean the fact that God gives us what we don't deserve. It is that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. He gives us what we don't deserve. He's so quick to forgive. Where sin abounds, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, Grace much more abounds. But grace isn't just about getting forgiveness. Grace is about God enabling us to change. Look what Paul says in verse 9. Paul says, notice, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, this is not Paul weighed down by guilt. This is Paul growing in a humble awareness of who he is apart from Jesus. One of the things that should happen to us the longer we walk to Jesus, the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we walk with him, the more we should recognize there's no way I could ever save myself. No way. I remember I'd been a Christian for maybe a, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half. I'd already gone through some pretty heavy things that, that God forgave me for and was, was growing a lot and was serving a lot. But I was getting more and more aware of how much junk was in my heart, in my head. And I remember going to my youth pastor, Troy, and saying, Troy, man, I'm getting worse. I thought, I thought Jesus was supposed to make me better, and I'm getting worse. And he says, what do you mean you're getting worse? And I always explain to him, man, I think this way, and I, I think that way, and I, I have this kind of thought, and I have <coughs> these kinds of words come out of my mouth. And I thought, 
All that should be gone by now. And he said to me something really profound. He says, John, God is light. And the closer you get to God, the more of your darkness is going to be exposed. You should expect this is what's normal. Now, why does God expose our darkness? So that we can walk in his light. It's not about making us feel guilty. It's not about holding us down. It is about lifting us up. In fact, you see this happening in Paul's life in Ephesians chapter 3. Listen, he writes in Ephesians 3, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Do you see this progression? I'm not, I'm not worthy to be an apostle. I'm the least of the saints. I'm the chief of or the foremost of sinners. Is this a guy overburdened with guilt? No, this is a guy who just truthfully recognizes who he is. He can never save himself. Only Jesus can save him. That's growth. See, you you can always tell the difference between someone who's just a religious person and someone who really has a relationship with God through Jesus. The religious person says, I don't know if I'll get to heaven. I hope so. You know, I'm trying really hard. I, I, I think I have a good chance. That's what the religious person says. The righteous person, the one who knows God through Jesus says, oh, I do not deserve ever to be in God's presence or to enjoy him or to be called his son or daughter ever. But I know because of Jesus, I'm absolutely going to be with him forever. They're convinced, not because of some random doctrine. They're con- Listen to me. They're convinced because the closer they get to God, the more they recognize they can never save themselves. And the closer they get to God through Jesus, the more they recognize Jesus has done it all. This is grace, guys. See, Paul also, listen, Paul's not identifying by past failures, nor by present victories. Paul's identifying himself, listen, through his relationship with God. Listen to this. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about this. Paul says, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And if you read the whole chapter, he then talks about all his pedigree, his religious pedigree as a Hebrew of Hebrews. If anybody wants to brag, everybody wants to flex religiously, Paul says, I can flex. But he also says this, I count all of that, everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. None of that means a hill of beans. None of it. All that matters is knowing Jesus, knowing what he's done for me, knowing that he's alive and is my standing before God forever. See, Paul's identity was received through God's grace. Guys, listen, this, this is why we should grieve about those who feel like their identity is, has to be attached to their sexuality. Because our sexuality is complex. All of us, the only person who is not broken sexually is Jesus. All of us are broken sexually. But if our identity is wrapped up in our sexuality, we're missing the grace of God. This is also why, listen, this is also why, As much as we need more help, and that was a shameful hint, that we need more people to volunteer to help at Servant's Church. 
As much as we need that, we don't want your identity to be based on how you serve the church or what position you hold in the church. Because to do so is to miss the grace of God. Because God wants to, God has, through Jesus, given us a unique and eternal and equal, no matter what your ethnicity or your economic background or your church background or how good or bad of a person you think you were or are, he gives us an identity when we put our faith in Jesus alone for salvation. He gives us a new and eternal identity. Paul saw himself as this. Paul knew he was called to be an apostle. He didn't, he didn't shy away from that. He wasn't ashamed of being an apostle, even when it was necessary, using his apostolic authority. We saw that last week. But that wasn't his identity. His identity was who he was by the grace of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul didn't just see his identity that he received through God's grace. Listen, also, Paul's diligence in his ministry was enabled by God's grace. Look what he says in verse 10, second part of verse 10. I'm almost done. He says, by the grace of, uh, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. The them here is probably talking about Peter, Apollos, those other guys, remember in Corinthians that, that they were wanting to exalt and identify with? You guys remember that? He says, though it was not, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In other words, listen, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying it's been God's grace that has enabled me to do the ministry he's called me to do. Now again, before we, before we talk about this principle, because I know this might sound a bit strange to you, okay? But before we talk about this principle, I, I want you to think about, again, the context of 1 Corinthians. Paul's been talking about, hasn't he, the work of God's spirit among his gathered people. And he's been emphasizing, we've been trying to emphasize that when God works among his people, he wants to work in us to have a desire that says, the person near me, the person that is in front of me is more important than I am. Their needs are more important than mine. That other-centeredness, the Spirit wants to work in us, right? Why? Why is that so important? Because that shows the grace of God. So he wants to enable you by his grace to put others before you by his grace so that they and you can know his grace. That's what he wants to do. And in fact, listen, every single one of us as Jesus followers, listen, every single one of us needs to learn to do good by grace. This is exactly what the scripture teaches. Listen, Paul says this in Titus chapter 2. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, that is, came with Jesus, bringing salvation for all people, that's anyone who will believe, training us to renounce ungodliness. How? How do we say, I'm not doing that anymore. I don't want to go that direction anymore by the grace of God. And worldly passions. How do we say, no, I might want this, but I want God more. How do we do that? By the grace of God. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. How do we do that? By the grace of God. And when do we do that? In the present age. Paul wants the Corinthians to recognize, listen, you don't earn God's grace by being spiritual. You don't 
sort of tap into God's grace by doing just the right spiritual program. What happens is when you recognize that your Savior Jesus lives, and because He lives, His Spirit dwells in you, and because His Spirit dwells in you, you can use that life, for that life is one that He work through you. He wants to work through you to make Himself known to one another and through you as a group to the world, and this is all called grace. Getting what we don't deserve and fully and only divine enabling, doing what only God can do. Do you want this? Isn't this a glorious thing to think about that's ours? Can you see why Paul's saying, this is why you have to hold fast to Jesus? When you hold fast to Jesus, you're not ignoring the Holy Spirit. You're following the Holy Spirit. You're obeying the Holy Spirit. When you hold fast to Jesus, you're not grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. You're putting in your place where you're able to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, Jesus says in John 16, the Holy Spirit will make much of Jesus. And so when you're wanting to make much of Jesus in your heart and your life, the Holy Spirit's all over that. See, Paul, listen, knew he was enabled by God's grace. But you know what else? Paul wanted, it was God's grace that Paul wanted to be seen through the gifting that he had and the giftings that the Corinthians had. This is what he says in verse 11, isn't it? He says, whether then it was I or they, again, they, the other guys who preached at Corinth. It could even be a, 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 a reference to those who were, were prophesying there in Corinth. He says, so we preach and so you believed. Do you remember what he said earlier in chapter 3? Paul had written, right? I think, I think Rory taught this. He had said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Do you know what happens when we hold fast to Jesus? You know what happens when we make much of Jesus, when we desire to put others first like Jesus did, when we say, God, give me what I don't have to minister to this person, and then God moves supernaturally through us. You know what happens when Jesus is exalted? You know what happens? He gets all the glory, and more people come to saving faith. If people come to servants, if you came to servants thinking, ooh, this is a good church, I want to be in this church. This church will do me good. Praise God for that. That's a good thing. But don't miss, don't miss what we're saying here. You don't need servant's church. You need the servant whose church we are. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. And it's in holding fast to him and what he's done through you, for you through his death and resurrection that puts you in that place to be filled afresh by His Spirit.